Thank y'all so much. Well, this morning uh, we're going to continue our series on marriage and the family. And I'll go ahead and tell you, um, as I sat down to prepare my sermon today, I went ahead and updated my resume because um, I'm going to be looking at Ephesians 5 and talking about headship and submission. And so I thought maybe I ought to go ahead and do this before I make somebody mad and get run out of the church. Every now and then, preachers got to say some stuff to uh, kind of get people fired up. But it seemed like uh, several years ago, I used to fill in for Chuck Beaver and his young married Sunday school class quite a bit. And it seemed like every time we got to Ephesians chapter 5, he would have to go out of town. Uh, so I would then get to teach the class. But uh, today I want us to look at um, at that passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and look at those two things of, of submission and headship um, because we can misinterpret that in a lot of different ways. We can get confused on that. I heard about a man who one day was reading this passage and he decided he had it all figured out. He, he had it in his mind that he had everything settled and he knew exactly what it meant, what this passage taught. And so he walked into his house one night, he came in from work and he looked at his wife and he said, he pointed his finger in her face and he said, from now on, I want you to know that I am the man of the house, and my word is law, and you're going to do everything I say you're going to do. And when I get home from work, you're going to fix me a dinner, and when I get done with that dinner, you're going to make me a great dessert, and then when I get done with all that, you're going to draw me a hot bath so I can go take a soak, and guess who's going to comb my hair and get me dressed when I'm done? And she looked at him and said, well, I'm guessing it's going to be the funeral director. <laughs> I mean, what exactly does it mean? when the Bible tells us that wives are submit to, to submit to their husbands? What does it mean when the Bible says that men are to be the heads of their homes and are to love their wives? Now, I know you all just turned to Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to mark your spot there because before we get there, if we want to understand Ephesians 5, uh, we have to, first of all, understand some other passages that I think will lay some groundwork for us. And so go to Genesis chapter 1. I want us to begin in Genesis chapter 1 and look at God's creative process. What was his intention in creating man and woman? Because I think that will help us to properly interpret Ephesians 5. When we read Genesis 1 and 2, those two chapters, we'll see that God created two genders, male and female. Two, not three, not five, not 17, not 59, but Two, and that was the way God intended it. In Genesis 1.27, the Bible says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so he, at that initial creation event, when he made Adam and Eve, he made a man, he made a woman, and he created them as spiritual equals. Both were made in God's image. Both possess the image of God within them and are a part of displaying the fullness of God's image. We've talked about that before, that if it was only men, there would be something in God's image we would miss. If there were only women, there would be something in God's image that we would miss. But God created them both, male and female, in His image that we together would display God's image. And I would also say that both are required to accomplish the task that was set before them in verse 28. It said that God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That takes two genders, to fill the earth. 
and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It took man and woman, male and female, to live out the purpose, the, the task that God had laid before them right there. Now, God, in creating male and female, created them different. Look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. He made them to be distinctly different, similar yet different. Just before God created Eve, it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, that the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now that phrase right there, helper fit for him, it was a Hebrew phrase that is translated like opposite him. In other words, God created Eve to be like Adam in some ways. You remember whenever he first saw Eve, he said, this at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. There's a similarity there, but yet an opposite, a distinct difference there. And so God's goal was to make two genders, man and woman, that complement each other. Not that man is greater than woman, not that woman was to be greater than man, but, but man and woman were to be equals spiritually before God and who would have distinct roles, distinct tasks to carry out and that they would together walk side by side. It was Matthew Henry who I think said it beautifully when he said that the woman was not made out of his head to rule over him nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be Beloved, it's a good reminder when we read this that God made two genders and He gave those genders a purpose, a role, a task. This was not something that societies came up with. This was not something um, that is fluid. It's not something that's changeable. It's not something that's up for debate. We must remember that man and woman are equal but yet different. And so the goal was not to erase the differences, but instead to work together with the differences. I mean, the goal is not to make men act like women. I think we see some of that today when we want to kind of effeminate, make men more effeminate, to make them more acceptable in some ways to, into the culture. And the goal is not to convince women to act like men. That's not the answer either. God made man and woman, and he made them to be functionally different, and that was a good thing. It was good that God made us to be different. I mean, I, I tried to sit down and think about... Um, ways that men and women are different. And now I know all of these are not necessarily true with every man and every woman, but these are some things I think about. I think about the fact that generally speaking, men and women make decisions differently, don't we? Men tend to think through decisions intellectually and tend to analyze things where women tend to feel their way through decisions. When I talk to my wife about decisions, I usually say, I think we ought to do this. She'll typically say, I feel like we ought to do this. God gave us brains, but he also gave us emotions. That's a good thing. And he created men and women slightly different, that they feel their way, they think their way through decisions differently. I think men and women typically look at risk differently, right? Women typically prioritize protection. They prioritize assurance, knowing that things are, are, are there, are safe. While men typically like challenges. They're generally more open to risk. And so if it was just men in the world, we would all run headlong into risk and probably pay a lot of prices. But if there were just women in the world, sometimes we would be a little too wary of risk. I think men and women approach relationships differently. We approach life differently. Men typically are task-oriented people. Women are typically people-oriented people. I mean, if there were only men in this world, we would never make relationships. 
If there were only women in this world, we would never leave the church after Sunday service and we would never make it to lunch because we'd still be talking in the sanctuary. Because we approach things. Y'all are supposed to laugh at that. I, didn't like, I, got some, I got some frowns on that one. I'm just kidding. We parent differently too. When we look at men and women, we, we parent differently. Men, our children need the discipline and instruction that comes from dads so often. They need the nurturing, the emotional support that often comes from mom. Not that dads don't give emotional support, not that moms don't give discipline, but we do so in different ways. And you know what's neat, I think about marriage, is so often God places opposites together. And sometimes it's different. Sometimes it's the wife who's more, who's more think through things, and it's the husband who more feels through things. Sometimes it's the wife who's more task-oriented, and it's the man who's more people-oriented. And so, but all that is God's idea, that he created us to be different and, and to live out those roles. And so when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, I think what it helps us for when we get to Ephesians 5 is that, yes, God created man and woman. He created them to be spiritual equals, yet he created them to be different. And that understanding alone ought to keep us from running to dangerous extremes when we look at Ephesians 5. For instance, if we understand that we're two genders who are different yet equal, it keeps us from taking that headship command to mean that marriage is to be a dictatorship and running to this idea that men are to dominate over women because God placed them over them, and so that must be women are, are, are inferior. That, that's not what God intends. But I think also when we see what it says here, it helps us to remember that we can't run the opposite direction and say, forget about genders, we're all equal, we're all the same, we forget about roles and all that kind of stuff, because God created those roles. But there's something else I want, to see, I want us to see. Philippians Chapter 2, turn there. There's a relationship that we see talked about in Philippians 2 that is older than creation, that gives us another bit of information that I think is, helps us to have a framework for how to do Ephesians 5. Philippians 2, verse 5. It talks about the relationship between Christ and the Father, the Heavenly Father, God in Heaven. And it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You, you see this whole idea of headship and submission and love is as old as eternity. And we see it in the relationship of the Father and the Son. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, that passage we just read, gives us the picture of this loving relationship between Jesus, the Son, and between God, the Father. And it's a perfect love. It's an infinite love. It's a never-ending love. It's a pr the prime example of love. And in that love, they both wanted to please and honor each other. And so I want you to see the, the relationship here. The father and son loved each other. The son willingly submits to the will of the father. 
And what does the Father do in return? He exalts the Son. He celebrates the Son. He gives the Son honor. He lifts high the Son. Well, guess what? That's the pattern for marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. It's going to be on the screen. It says this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of, his, of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And so you see these two relationships. You have Christ, whose head is God the Father. You have the husband and wife, the husband being the head of the wife. There's a, Paul's trying to draw a connection here. And he's telling us that the relationship of the Father and the Son is the model. It's the example, the pattern of the relationship for, for the husband and wife. Just as Christ submitted himself to the Father, so wives are to submit themselves to the leadership of the husband. And just as the Father loved and exalted the the Son lifted high, cherished, honored the Son. So husbands are to love, cherish, honor, lift high their wives. You see, in that relationship, one is not put down. Both are lifted up. I mean, in this relationship of the Trinity, Christ's submission does not show that He is weak. It shows that He is great. It shows that He is mighty. It shows that He is overall. And in the relationship, the father's position doesn't make him a dictator. Instead, he lays down his authority, in a sense, and gives his honor to the son, raises his son above all. Everything he does exalts the son. And so in a right marriage relationship, the idea of headship, that idea of submission, is not belittling to the wife. It's not degrading for the wife, but instead it's exalting. When it's lived outright, it's encouraging. It's honoring, it's cherishing, it's uplifting. And if we'll follow this pattern, I believe for husbands and wives, it will turn us loose, loose to be who Christ wants us to be. And so with all that said, now let's go to Ephesians 5. And let's look at this practically. It says in Ephesians 5, let's talk about husbands first. There's basically two tasks, two commands that Paul gives to husbands here in Ephesians 5. He commands leadership and he commands love. In verse 23, chapter 5, verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And then look down in verse 25. It says there in verse 25, that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or blemish or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, I already said this, but I'll say it again. Headship does not equal dominance. When we read that passage and it says, husbands are the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, that's not dominance. Because I believe dominance and love can't coexist. Um, they don't go together the way at least Scripture defines it. Take, for instance, Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. It's going to be on the screen. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's, that's not dominance. That's not authoritarianism. Um, or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of, the, of this grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And, and so nowhere in there do we see this idea 
that men are just supposed to bark out orders and women have to do them. That, that, that's not the picture of headship we see. Instead, the very starting point of headship, the very starting point of understanding what is the husband's role in the relationship is to look at Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And what was the leadership model that Jesus gave to his church? What was the picture that Jesus gave to his church of how leaders were to lead? By serving. He says, love their wives and, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It reminds me of John chapter 13. In that scene, whenever Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. You remember that scene? Here is Jesus, the Son of God. The Great One, the Mighty One, the, the Messiah. And, and what does He do in that, in, that, in that room there? He dons the apron of the servant. And He takes on the lowest task of all, washing those grimy feet of those disciples. And, and then after He does that, even after the disciples protest and say, Jesus, you can't wash my feet, because they realize in that moment what they've done. They realize that they've all ignored the task because they didn't want to do it. They, they kind of, you know, I'm sure they probably walked in, saw the basin and said, oh, I didn't see that. You know, let's wait until someone else does it. I'm sure there's another disciple that ought to do that, not me. Jesus does it. And, and then they, they go through that humbling moment. And then in John chapter 13, verse 12, Jesus gives this command. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Man, let me tell you this. This is straight from the Word of God. If you want to lead like Christ lead, you've got to learn to serve like Christ served. That is leadership. And that, that is the leadership that we as men are called to. I mean, lesson number one in Christ's school of leadership is that husbands must learn to lead their wives by lovingly serving them just as Christ led the church by serving the church. That is headship. I know it seems backwards. I know it seems contradictory to say, oh, the headship then to serve. But yet that's what Christ did. That the one who was overall, rather than, than, than wanting everyone to serve him, what did he do? He did not come to be served but to serve. And so that's what we are called to as husbands. And so what does that look like? What does that serving leadership look like for husbands? It looks like praising our wives on a daily basis for their goodness. It looks like celebrating their strengths. It looks like building her up daily. It looks like making sure that she knows that you are the only woman that has her eye. That you're not looking around at anyone else. You're not comparing her to anyone else, but you are perfectly satisfied in your relationship with her. It looks like knowing her abilities and knowing her strengths and using those things for the good of your marriage and relationship. You know, sometimes as men, being that head role, you know, we, we want to think, well, I've just got to be able to do everything myself. I need to have all the answers. But we need to know our wives, and we need to know, know where they're gifted. And sometimes, guys, we need to know where to look at them and say, what do you think? What should we do? Because we need to understand that sometimes God has given wives, many times often, God has given wives an ability to see things in ways that men can't see. And so part of leading sometimes is getting out of the way. It's just like any kind of leadership in a business. Sometimes the leader's got to learn when to get out of the way and let the people do their thing. 
and so husbands, is that how you're leading your spouse? Is that how you're leading your wife? Because that's all part of servant leadership. And I would also add this. The servant leadership involves, most importantly, taking responsibility for your family before the Lord and being the spiritual leader in the home. I mean, as men, our lives must echo the words of Joshua when Joshua looked at the people of Israel and said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That must be our, on our minds. I mean, men, can, can it be said that you are the spiritual leader of your home? Can it be said that your wife is following you toward the Lord? I mean, why should we expect our wives to follow our lead if we're not leading them in the most important part of life, their spiritual life? I mean, men, we, we must be leading our wives to the Word. We must be leading our wives and our families in prayer. We must be leading our families spiritual. Servant leadership requires both servanthood, but it also requires leadership. We must not only serve our wives, but we must lead them to the Lord. We must lead them with godly wisdom. You know, sometimes I'm afraid that as men, there are some men who are great servants, but they're poor leaders. They're too afraid. They're too nervous. They don't know what to do, and they don't lead their families well. Some men, on the other hand, can, can bark out orders and can say, let's do this, but they don't serve well. Christ called us to be servants and leaders. Men, you must be loving. You must be servants. We must be men and we must lead. And into the women, this is what Paul says in verse 22. He gives two commands once again. So to men, he says, love and lead. And to the women, he says, submit and respect. Verse 22, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And in verse 33... He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so there's two commands there, submit and respect. And we've already said this, but I'll go over it again. It doesn't mean spiritual inequality. God made man and woman together with the image of God, in the image of God. It doesn't mean silence. It doesn't mean that men are just to do everything and women are just to quietly obey. It also, I would say, doesn't mean slavery. It doesn't mean that women are just to simply follow their husbands even into sin. That's not what would honor God. And so, but the way it ought to be lived out is that as your husband is giving up his life to you in service of you, like Christ served the church, you are called then, wives, to submit yourself to his leadership. Do you see how that works? That as the husband follows the Lord, the wife is then to follow the husband. Now, what does that look like on a regular basis? It looks like encouragement. It looks like prayer. It looks like love. It looks like support. It looks like forgiveness sometimes when he fails. It looks like respect. It looks like celebrating his strength. There's a lot of different ways we could do this, and I think it's interesting that for neither love and leadership nor submit and respect does the Bible give us exact examples of how to do that. Because I think it might be slightly different in every marriage relationship. But what about this? Because this is a question I've had to ask me before, and, and um, I'm sure some of you may have thought this before. What if he doesn't lead well? 
Or what if he doesn't give you the love that you think you deserve? Or what about this, men? What if she doesn't submit to your leadership? What if she doesn't give you respect? Does that mean you're released from your responsibility and you can just do what you want to do? I heard a story about a guy one time who... Um, his kids had just moved out of the house. He and his wife had just entered the empty nester stage of the relationship. I, mean, I know some of you are in that, in that stage. And um, the guy was talking to one of his buddies, and he complained about how he had heard that whenever husbands and wives enter the empty nester stage, that so often the wife will start to treat their husband like they're a child. And this guy started complaining about this and saying, you know, it happens to me all the time. He said, man, we'll go to the grocery store together, and every time we're walking down the aisle, I'll go to reach on something, and she'll smack my hand and say, we're not getting that this week. And then he said, I'll reach over and try to grab some popcorn. We're not getting that this week. We don't have money for that today. I'll reach over and try to get some, get some candy bars. We're not getting this. And, and the guy said, well, what do you do whenever she does that? And he says, you know, I get so mad that I climb right out of the basket and walk straight to the car. <laughs> you know, here, we, there's a tendency... When we feel like our spouse is not giving us what we think we ought to get, whether that's love, whether that's leadership, whether that's submission, whether that's respect, we tend to do one of two things. We tend to attack or we tend to shut down. And what I mean by that is so often whenever, whenever your spouse is not giving you what you think you deserve, we tend to go on the attack, we go on the offensive, and we begin to demand things. We begin to belittle them. We begin to complain about them to their face, and then we also begin to complain about them to someone else. I just can't believe my husband does this. I just can't believe my wife does this. Man, y'all are not going to believe this. She's, she's like this. He's like this. And we begin to attack them because they're not giving us what we want. Or, or sometimes this, it, these two go together, we begin to shut down. We begin to say, well, if he's not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. Or if she's not going to give me respect, then I'm just, I'm just not going to give her love. I'm just going to give her the cold shoulder. You know, to lead in love, to submit in respect are commanded by the Lord, but generally speaking, they don't come about by being demanded by a spouse. In fact, I would say that the more a spouse demands and attacks, the less likely the other spouse is going to respond. What do we typically do when we're attacked? We dig our heels in. We typically go the other way. We don't generally respond well when that happens. We have to remember in that situation that your obedience to Christ's commands is not dependent upon their obedience to Christ's commands. Is it? I mean, my call to lead my wife is not dependent upon whether or not she submits. My call to love my wife is not dependent upon whether or not she gives me respect. My call to love and to lead is dependent only upon the fact that Jesus called me to do it. And so I obey His word regardless of what happens because that's the only thing that matters that Christ has commanded me. And so what I must do, what we all must do, is when we find ourselves in situations where we're not getting what we think we ought to get, simply walk in faithfulness to the Lord and trust that God can change their heart through your obedience. That's what we're called to do. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says this. It gives it specifically to wives, but I think you could flip it around and use it for husbands as well. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the, the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do you, do you get what that verse is saying? It's saying, wives, when you find yourself in a situation where you're not getting what you think you ought to get, 
Just live as the Lord has called you to live and trust that God can change their hearts. I think the same is true for men. That if you find yourself in a situation where they're not, your wife is not responding, is not living, the way that you would pray, if you've prayed about it and you know that this is of the Lord, and you say, she's not, she's not submitting, she's not respecting the way I think that she ought to, the, 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 the best way to resolve that is not to point the finger, but instead to simply walk in obedience and trust that the Lord can change her heart. I heard it said by a German author back in the 1800s. If you treat a man as he is, he will stay as he is. But if you treat him as if he were what he ought to be and could be, he will become the bigger and better man. And I believe that is absolutely true. And I would also add this, that if a husband has to demand respect from his wife, if, if I'm in a situation where I have to constantly demand and respect that my, the respect and, and that my, from my wife and demand that she submit to me, you know what most likely is wrong, what quite possibly is wrong? I'm not loving her well. I'm not leading her well. If it's a situation where a wife has to demand love and leadership from her husband, it could, not always, but could point to a lack of respect. And so the first place we ought to look is not to the other, but to our Selves. And if we will lead by giving our spouse what they need first so often, they will respond by thriving and giving us what we need in return. And so here we find that men are supposed to lead and love. Wives are supposed to give respect and submission. But let me add this to you. I want to say this to those who are single today. Those who are single and maybe you're thinking one day maybe the Lord is going to lead you to marry again. Let me just say this. There's a reason why Paul commanded us in, first, in 2 Corinthians 6 not to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. And this is part of the reason. Ladies, if the guy that you're after doesn't love the Lord, there's no way he's going to love you as Christ loved the church. It's not possible because he does not know the love of the Lord. There's no way he's going to lead you as Christ leads because he's never submitted himself to Christ's leadership. And women, or I mean men, men, if the girl that you that you're after hasn't submitted herself to the Lord, there's no way she's going to submit herself to you and your spiritual leadership because she's refusing to submit herself to God. And so if you're in that situation, if you're single and you're searching, you are setting yourself up for heartache and hardship. If you go against what the Word of God tells you and you begin to pursue a, a man or a woman, whatever your situation is, who does not love the Lord, who does not surrender themselves to the Lord. And, and so when we come to Ephesians 5, remember, this is not just for husbands and wives. This is advice for those who might one day want to be married because marriage is hard work, is it not? Marriage is difficult. I mean, you cannot coast. In a marriage relationship, you, you can't. You can't coast. You can't just think that everything's going to be fine. You, you can't allow other things to take precedence over your marriage relationship. It's the most important relationship you have here on this earth. I mean, think about it like this, and I'll close with this. If you've ever flown, I'm, I'm assuming that most of you in this room have probably flown an airplane before. Um, you remember that little speech they always give you right before you take off? And they tell you that, you know, if in the event that the cabin were to lose pressure... Um, what's going to happen next? 
These little masks are going to fall down. And then they're going to tell you to do what? Put your mask on first and then turn to the people beside you and see if they need help. Now, why do they do that? Because you are of no help to anyone else if you are suffocating. You can't do anything if you are suffocating. So often in our marriages, we get so concerned with other things that our marriage relationship suffocates. We get so concerned with helping everything around us, doing everything around us. Sometimes even it's our kids. And we spend so much time on our parenting and our, and our children that our marriage begins to suffocate. And this is the whole reason I've preached on this for, for three weeks now. And next week we're going to get into parenting. But it's because if we want to have healthy marriages, we have to put the work in. We have to make it a priority. Is it a priority for you? As much of a priority for you as it is for the Lord? Let's pray. Father God, I am so grateful and thankful that you gave us the gift of marriage. And I do pray right now for the married couples in the room today that they would submit themselves to you and surrender to your leadership. And then in doing so, they would then turn and walk in obedience in their marriage. I pray that as men in this room, we would learn to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And we would learn to lead them as you would lead them. To bring them closer to you, Jesus. to walk in your wisdom and in your ways. Father, I pray for the men in this church that we would take responsibility for our homes, for our families, for our wives. And I pray if there's someone here today, who's some man in this room that says, I haven't been leading well. I haven't been loving well. I pray that today would be a day of confession and repentance. And that that man would be a man of God in his home. And I pray right now for the wives in the room today. Father, I pray that as they consider these commands, that they would, as they've submitted themselves to the Lord, would submit and respect their husbands. That they would pray for his leadership. That they would encourage him. That they would love him. Lift him up. Father, I pray in every one of our homes that we would live in accordance with your word. And God, I pray for those in this room today who are single, who maybe are considering one day marrying again, that you would lead them down the right path, that they would choose to be obedient to you, to pursue the spouse that you desire for them to, to pursue, one that loves you, one that serves you, one that has surrendered themselves to you. Father God, if there's decisions that need to be made today, this room, whether it be for salvation or membership or some type of rededication decision, if there's married couples that need to come to the altar and pray for one another, I pray that in this time of invitation, they would feel the freedom to do so and they would respond as you're leading. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Please stand as we sing.